Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Welcome back, everybody. I'm not sure what episode this is. I think we're up to like 28. We're getting close to 30. (laughs) Anyway, today, tonight, we are talking about tactics. I've got Doug. Say hi, Doug. Hey, how's it going, guys? And we have Chris. Looks like he's in the quarantine zone. Yes, I am. My governor shut us down. (sighs) We're all stuck at home now, right? So, uh, yeah, so we were kicking around ideas about what to talk about because we're not playing games and we were thinking about talking about solo play, but we're not really doing a whole lot of solo blood red skies playing. So there's not really a lot we can discuss on that, but you know, there's some stuff we can talk about to perhaps get better. I know I could use some help. Let's talk about some tactics and we could talk about maybe things that, um, we should be doing maybe some things we should not be doing. Maybe some things we should continue doing to be a little better at the game. But before we get into that, Let's talk about our very first part of our segment, which is our Intel update. What have you guys seen that's been coming out this uh, week or since our last recording anyway? Dude, those PE2s look epic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I already sent, I sent a picture of um, Tyrone Biggums doing the doing the crack scratch on his neck to, to John Russell today. And I said, hey, man, you got any of them PE2s and that new ace in your pocket? And he's, he sent me back. You know, the pusher says, soon, soon. <laughs> so they're on their way. They look gorgeous. from a, I, I've got some PE2s that I got from Dave. And... Um, and they're really good, but th- these those look really just amazing. So I'm I'm interested to get my hands on them. Who's the ace? So oh god, you're gonna put me on spot. It was an ace. I didn't even know what who she was, but yeah, it's a it's a female ace, which I'm I'm glad they're following that. But um, I have to look it up real quick. What's well, you're our resident Russian expert? What's I don't even know what a PE two is, man. I'm still unfamiliar with a lot of their aircraft. It looks like a twin engine, like a heavy fighter, I guess. No, P, yeah, P two is kind of like a fighter bomber. So think about it, kind of like in this in the Ju eighty seven kind of class. So you've it's a multi seat crew, but um, it was it was basically their primary short range, actually limited range, lightweight kind of bomber. So it was a step up from the IL two. It didn't have the the guns to engage ground targets. So so right there in that kind of like JU eighty seven, JU eighty eight role. So which is kind of interesting. They're they're pairing it with the JU eighty eight because yeah, that's probably probably a pretty close comparison on what it was designed for. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting to see uh, the the design of the aircraft, the things that differed, because I didn't even realize this about the PE-2, and it's one of those things that now I want to research to find out if it's urban legend or true, uh, was that it actually didn't have well-balanced control surfaces. So it took a heck of a lot of strength to pull it off the ground, in a sense. So you couldn't just let it fly away because it had such a low uh, climb ratio. But the problem was they found when they had a large number of the women flying, they had a hard time because they were not large, bulky Regardless of what you may think of Russian women, they were not large, bulky Russian women. And and it actually, they had at times the navigators assisting them pulling back uh, to get it airborne off the short runways. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. I mean, it looks like a big clunky thing, but it, it's very Russian in its design, without a doubt. It's, it's a utilitarian 
you know, big giant mallet to hit a nail kind of thing. I got to hear you say it, that it's Soviet Russia. <laughs> In Soviet Russia, plane crash you. <laughs> yeah, you don't P-E-T, fly the plane. Actually, P-E-T, plane P-E-T you. fly you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Or P-E-2. That's awesome. Well, I'm happy to see the JU-88s. I, I'm guessing they're going to be the new resins. The last um, JU-88s I did from, I think uh, John sent me some. I, I don't know that they were in production anymore. He found some when he went to England, and he graciously sent me some. And they were the Zvezda models, which were cool. But I think these are going to be a lot better because they're not going to be as you know funky to put together. And you know they were a little wonky because you have to assemble little bits and bobs, and the detail wasn't great. I was happy to have them. Don't get me wrong, and I've already painted them. I'm happy about that, but it'll be nice to have what I would presume to be a little easier to get started painting models and maybe ones that have a bit more detail than those old Zvezda models. So cool. Glad to have them. I'll grab some, I'm sure. There, I can give a lot of reasons to need them, right? Once I get through with the, all the other stuff I'm painting. Yeah, I'm just going to say Stalingrad and Stalingrad and maybe North Africa, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there were some pretty cool color schemes. I like those desert color schemes, and not many of them were in that kind of desert color scheme for the Malta stuff we've been doing, but certainly in the Western Desert, they were all super, you know, sand-colored and some other really interesting kind of desert schemes that you don't see anywhere else, so that'll be fun. So anything else uh, you guys have uh, been seeing out there? So a couple things I saw uh, the guys from the UK asking about uh, markers and chits and some things again, uh, and I wish I could remember the name of the Etsy store. I'll think about it here in a second. Uh, but uh, they kind of were going out asking for everybody's uh, inputs on things they'd like to see in acrylic, um, and you know their style of stuff is is very different than what you see from just lasered or even what you see from Litco. So, you know, I think it's an opportunity for everyone in the ready room to kind of engage and say, uh, you know, hey, here's what we'd love to see. You guys take your your artistic uh, bent on it uh, and, uh, you know, see what you guys can crank out and what kind of cool things can get generated. I saw you posted on Facebook the um, the sample set that the color, the, all the colors and stuff we picked for the airstrike markers. Yeah. You want yeah. to say anything yeah. about all that? Well, yeah. So, you know, and, it, and it's kind of funny if... Uh, if I had to typify the three different acrylic producers, uh, you know, we, we've we've kind of got um, the the guys from from buy the same token. That's the the Etsy store in the UK, uh, and I would say they're like the royalty. They're like very very artisanal uh, crafted uh, acrylic out there, and it's handcrafted and it's lovely. Really, you should make it an heirloom, uh, but but it looks really beautiful. Uh, then you probably down there from you, you have Litco, who's been doing some projects in the U.S. with us. Um, and they have really good quality stuff, but to me, it's it's very America. We got lots of it. We got all kinds of options, and you can get it in one of 27 different colors, America. Um, so there's a, there's a wide variety of cool things we've done with them. And then what we just showed this last time was our work with Just Lasered, who, if I had to uh, typify him, he would be a... British Cockney coal worker from the uh, 1800s. Oi, what have you got there? Is it cheap? Is it good? Does it do the job? Absolutely. Let's get it. And so his stuff, we've just uh, 
agreed on the colors for. He's ready to crank them out. It will be good and cheap, um, and I think it'll really give people what they need, the markers to uh, to get out there and to have some terrain, uh, have some uh, airstrike counters for laden, for uh, flak markers, all kinds of crazy stuff, and at an awesome price. Because if I can say one thing about Mel at Just Lasered, he cuts you a good deal. I don't know how he's making any money on any of the acrylic he's doing. Maybe it's just a hobby to him, uh, but, uh, but he will give you a very good deal on all those things. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting some games in with some of those new markers and stuff after we've picked the colors and stuff. I think the last uh, few Airstrike games we played, we were using the the chits and stuff right out of the box set, which is cool, but it'd be nice to see those new markers and start to use like the terrain markers and all that stuff. We didn't really get to that level on our last Airstrike game. so Yeah, absolutely. So I'm excited uh, because, you know, we partnered with Litco, so all of our uh, U.S. listeners who are like, hey, how do I get a copy? of something cheaply from the UK. Well, don't worry, we'll have the ones from Litco and assuming we're not all in lockdown and people can still cut and mail acrylic, uh, we will have some of that. Uh, and Litco will either uh, have it on their website or available through Amazon or things like that. Um, so there's there's a lot of options out there for, for all these pieces uh, and some pretty cool, unique things. That's cool. You see anything out there, Chris, besides PE2s? No, I mean, I, other than the PE2s, that's a, the one thing I've been really been looking at. And it's Maria Delina is the ace for the PE2s. That's what I was feverishly looking up because I was like kicking myself. I was like, how do you do not remember that? But um, I'd never heard of her. So I'm going to do a deep dive history wise on her probably tomorrow. So um, you lie. You're going to Wikipedia and that's it. No, I'll go deeper than that. I have all of the Black Cross Red Star books here. So um Trust me, it'll be a deep dive. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny when I, I, like I said, I didn't know much about that airframe, but just looking at it from the, from the release, I thought, what is that? Is that a, like a heavy fighter? Is that some kind of bomber or whatever? Anyway, and then you said ace. And I was like, well, how the hell does one get an ace status in an aircraft like that? But then I remembered, um, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole ace book for the, um, for the JU-88s. And uh, I haven't gotten that book, but I've seen it. So I know that. I guess somehow it happened. I don't know if they're counting like ships that were sunk or. Yeah, that, that would be an interesting question to ask somebody what they were determining for an ace. I mean, I know with Hans Rudels, they just, you know, like Hans Rudel, they just counted, you know, how many things he just thrown on the ground. So I would assume that with bombers, it was successful missions or something like that. Kind of like reaching the, you know, the 25, you know, magic missions for, for a B-17 crew or something. Nice. Well, let's move on to our hangar segment. That's where we talk a little bit about any new kits that we've received, any new mats, any other paints or other cool things that we've used since our uh, last recording. You know, it's mostly hobby stuff, maybe. What do you guys uh, see out there? Anything you're using? Or I'm not going to even ask Doug because he hasn't painted anything. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Really, you got to go there, but that's true. (laughs) Yeah. I did get my hands on the P40s from... Bloodred Skies. I got a set of um, the 262s, the BF109 uh, Gs, and I got Gabritsky. They didn't have the the Thunderbolts yet as a squadron at um, Noble Knight Games, which is where I was doing my order from. But I got one with the Gabritsky set, and they're all great models. So it looks like they're all going to be fun to paint. Ooh, nice. I'm kind of jealous, but I have a big stack of resin I got to get through before I commit to placing another order. Doug, did you order something? Well, my uh, my large order of Vietnam resin is uh, getting ready to ship, so uh, that should meet me back in South Carolina, and then I'll have yet more that I haven't done. 
Ooh, I cannot wait to see a 105 and an F4, what they look like. I, you know, I'm thinking an F4 must be pretty darn big. I want to put one next to yeah, a 109. I just, I'm afraid it's going to dominate the table, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, speaking uh, of, we've all been talking about documentaries lately, and now you guys are talking about Vietnam. And I know me and Brett have just, and Brett's watching it right now, and I just finished the Netflix 10-part series on Vietnam, which if you haven't watched it, watch it. That's one of the best documentaries out there. Each episode, I think, is about an hour and a half, two hours long. But um, amazing footage that I had never seen. But there's another documentary on Netflix that I just found yesterday that I was watching while cooking called The Hun, which is about the um, the F, uh, the Super Saber. That was amazing because it's all personal accounts of the pilots that flew it from when it first came in the inventory all the way to the time it was retired. And they're out of this world. It's about an hour and a half long. Well, that's cool that you mentioned that. I, I watched, a, I think it was on Prime, uh, Amazon Prime. I just watched a uh, documentary I thought was really good, too. I haven't seen The Hun, but the one I just saw was called Thud Pilots, I think. And it was all about the 105. Really interesting. Yeah, so I'd I definitely gotta, be interested to watch that. I'm going to go look for it. Yeah, look for that. I'm pretty sure it's called Thud Pilots. I'm going to look for The Hun. That's awesome. Well, uh, I have a a new paint that we could talk about that I haven't discussed since our you know last uh, conversation, but you know, I know we've talked in previous episodes a lot about how much we like flurry wash, and to really get the most out of using flurry wash, you got to gloss coat your model before you put it on. So typically, when I'm painting, I'll, I'll you know do all the base coats, all the details, basically all the painting is done. I gloss coat it, then I put on the flurry wash, remove the flurry wash except for the bit we want to stay in the panel lines and recesses and stuff. Then I do my decals and gloss coat again. Then matte gloss or matte I said that wrong matte varnish right to take all the shine off so it sounds like a lot of steps it's less cumbersome than it sounds um, but it makes everything tight well sometimes I found when I would just use my airbrush or whatever to gloss varnish before putting the um, flurry wash on uh, I don't know if it's something about the kind of you know water-based uh gloss varnish I was using I'm not sure what the issue was but when I put the flurry wash on if I let it stay on for a long time like let's say I put the flurry wash and went away for a day or two and didn't get back to take the excess flurry wash off with a damp q-tip sometimes it was really hard to get all of it off it was almost like it sort of leached into the layer of varnish to the point where it just could not be removed uh, not a big deal because uh, I know it happened on my my MIGs and I just, you know, got what I could off and, and painted over in some places where I needed to just to clean it up. No big deal. But um, I, mostly because I was in a rush one time when I was trying to gloss some models, I grabbed a can of really craft quality uh, clear acrylic gloss coating that I actually bought from Hobby Lobby some years ago. And it was, I just threw it in with my paint stuff. I probably use it for some kind of school project with my son and didn't throw it out when I was done with it. So I had this can and I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this. It turns out to be the best dang thing I've used for this purpose because one, it comes out of a can, so it's easy. But uh, when it dries and I put the flurry wash on, even if I let the flurry wash sit for several days, man, it comes off like a champ. The flurry wash comes right off and it's so smooth. It almost has a, it just feels like a really hard finish. So if you're interested, it's Treehouse Studio brand clear acrylic gloss coating from Hobby Lobby. And it's like eight bucks a can, I guess. I'll uh, add that to our links of stuff. But I, I like it. I, I give it a big thumbs up if you're 
going to do your gloss coating. I've used it uh, before doing the flurry wash and I've used it after putting my decals and I've had zero issues with it. It's been super easy to use and super smooth. Good stuff. Yeah. I wonder if it's a big, it might have something to do with the fact that I know I've gotten so sold on the AK stuff just be, by the classes I've been taking and I haven't been using them for the kind of purposes of doing what we're doing with flurry wash. It might just be that I'm so used to using, you know, out of the, 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 you know, acrylic based gloss varnishes that it's just an alcohol based varnish, you know, or alcohol or thinner based varnish. And that might have something to do with it. The fact that it's a, a different type of paint than the flurry wash technically is, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes if you use a, an acrylic based, um, base coat and then you do something that's, that's, um, you know, that's got a thinner base application to it. There's a difference between those two. And maybe that is adding a, acting like an additional barrier that could quite possibly what it is. Yeah. Cause I know I've been using GWR coat and, quite frankly i'm surprised because even as thick as i slather it on the flurry wash just slides right off of it and that's and probably the, it the sticking so I, it may just be something about the like i said the composition and the thickness of it because while i hate how the the hard coat looks on it and and sometimes it does pool like around the the mig 15's wing fences so it kind of smooths some of those details out um the flurry wash just slides right off those places that's good i think maybe it's a maybe it's just this is maybe more resistant more water resistant than the other stuff i was using so the flurry wash can't like soak into it if it makes sense but that's what it feels like it feels like it's just it's just it is it just doesn't nothing. have the pores yeah yeah there's nothing for it to stick to or stick into so it just comes right off it's awesome so i'm happy with it i'm going to continue using it. i just got another can of it recently before we got in lockdown <laughs> so uh i got a full can for future projects just thought i'd share Oh, you know, that makes me think of something else. And I'm not sure if it goes here in our Intel update, but man, has anybody seen the free books they're giving away at uh, Osprey? Uh, Osprey Ooh, Publishing. I have missed that. How have I missed that? <laughs> yeah, it just came up. I saw it on a Facebook feed. I think on uh, I think somebody posted it on the Ready Room. And uh, if you go to, uh, let's see, I might have the link here. If you, anyway, if you go to, um, if you go to Osprey, and uh, they have this thing going on. It's got it's got kind of a pretty cool little uh, paragraph saying, "Look, we know we're all in lockdown, and to make things easier on you, you know, catching up on your reading will give you something to keep yourself busy." What they're doing is every week for the next several weeks, they're giving away as many as five books each each week, and they give you a little promo code, and you get the ebook, the e version of uh, any of the five books. I think somebody even said that they got all five, but uh, you can go on order the books and they'll send them to you. And they cover a whole variety of different uh, you know, military history interests. But the one that's up there for this week, that's maybe most related to what we're doing is Yak one versus ME one Oh nine. It's uh Eastern front 41 to 42. So yeah. Have you, cool. have you ever looked at any of their, what I call the versus series? The, uh, the I, I've got that record. one, the Yak versus BF one Oh nine. It's like a good those. book. I, yeah, I it think is there. I think it's pretty cool because it, it really boils down a lot of the information from the ACES books or the individual aircraft books and, and kind of puts it in a frame of reference that you care about for the game because it talks about, hey, this aircraft was kind of hard to see out of but was really maneuverable. And, and then it kind of throws some anecdotes in there that, that go with those characteristics. So I, I've always enjoyed those. I, I don't have that one, so maybe I'll go over to ospreypublishing.com and pick that up. 
I, I really like the tearaways they do on the aircraft and that series of books that they don't do in so many other ones. So you kind of get Ospreys. It's just a really good diagram of how the plane was put together, where the guns were, how the guns were mounted, that type of stuff, where the, where the cannon storage was. And I really enjoyed just seeing that. I found the link. It's at ospreypublishing.com forward slash blog forward slash free underscore ebooks underscore week underscore one. You go to there. And it's got all the info. I, I think that needs to be on the website as soon as we're done. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we can uh, pull it from Ready Room and just um, put, it, put it on our page, too. It's a good idea. Yep. So, yeah, I was really happy to see that. I, re- I went over right away. It takes no time at all. You, you know, if you're not already registered, you register. It took me like two minutes, and bang, you get it for free. Sent right to your yeah. phone, whatever. Throw it so, out there on your Instagram and everything else. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I'm sorry. Maybe. I prefer the book on Sasanian cavalry. That's actually more my speed. <laughs> it's, 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 for ancients, maybe I'll be painting some plumes. Yeah, I think they did. They had something that might be relevant for those folks that are into um, some of the sea battle games, right? Was there some kind of like pirate stuff or something? Yeah, there was know. a pirate one. I didn't take a look at what it was. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. There's many. Well, yeah. five, five different books. Beard's last fight. are In case you're doing pirate stuff. Yeah, there's a lot. All right. So what's everybody working on? Uh, Doug, first. You go first. Uh, I'm working on staring at my Mark V uh, Spitfires that are still sitting here next to my painting station that has a ton of acrylic all over the painting station, but uh, yeah, no acrylic paint or anything actually going out. Yeah, I've decided I'm sick of doing Italians um, with their tiny little camouflage, and I don't want to look at anything else. So I actually pulled a box of mosquitoes out that I bought years ago. And um, actually, it it was like right when we first started this. Actually, it wasn't more years ago. That was a year ago. So, God, it feels like a long time. But I I bought a year ago when we first got into the game and had not touched because I didn't do REF and I jumped into the Russian stuff. So I think I'm going to get those painted. I got some cool. Mine are primed. I'm (laughs) not. I'm going to get to them and I'm going to get those painted up. Uh, I've got some cool decals from Kevin, right? Right, Kevin? Nice work. Nice work. So, that, by the way, we have an official correction to make. Um, we called Kevin Ken uh, for the entire episode last week. And I think you did. I don't think I used his name. It's all your fault. Dude, yeah. It, you know, I get I got Ken Nat on the brain somehow, and the kind of the two merged together, and I don't know what happened. And we'll blame I Ken Nat. Then Ken, it's all your fault. We it's all your Kevin fault, Ken. Ken. Yep. Nice work. Yep. F. Yep. F so, minus. Ken, get off your ass in the UK and start making decals. Um, yeah, exactly. Ken, so where are my damn decals? I've been waiting. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, Kevin, but, um, Kevin, Kevin Hammond. He is our champion of decals. <laughs> so, we just, I just wanted to put an official correction out there. I deeply apologize. By the way, he did the um, Ye Old Pub decals for me, and I got those in the mail last week. Um, like I said, he sent me the link. I, I said, those are great. Where do I order them? Here's the link to order them. I ordered them. I had them in two days. So you, you can't get better turnaround than you can from Kevin. It is just his stuff is amazing. I haven't pestered him in a little while. Uh, I have some of the stuff in my stack of stuff to do. I already have the, you know, he's already done the work for me on the decals. But uh, I have some HE-111s for Stalingrad that I'm going to have to bug him about once I get through those B-29s. I think that'll be my next piece. I'll call him up and say, hey, can we do this? He's already told me he could do it. It's not a big deal, but... Uh, anyway, he is a, he is a real champion. He can make that stuff happen so fast. So that's cool. Dude, still it, literally, he sent me an email and said, hey, I'm working on the ye old pub decals right now. Do you want one with the German 
or would you prefer that I did a decal that had some of the other planes that flew with Yeo Pup, which I had no idea who they were. But I said, yeah, that sounds great. And he went out there and on the decal shit, there's two other airplanes that flew with Yeo Pup that have the accurate names, numbers and everything on the decal sheets. I mean, the, the dude's just awesome. He did that in a day. Yeah, he can't be beat. It's pretty awesome. We're going to. So in case our listeners don't already understand this, Doug is really our expert when it comes to really game mechanics in general. I mean, he's really got a lot of expertise when it comes to... He can't to, paint, but he'll whip your ass on the tabletop. Yeah, well... Yeah, I'm and, sorry. Any trophies given out for painting at the last Blood Red Skies tournament? Oh, wait, no, they didn't. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> well, I don't even mean just like he's a really good player on the table, which he is, but I mean, you just have a lot of skill when it comes to understanding, understanding game mechanics and how things you know, should work and do work and putting them all together. 20 years of talking with his hands and then five years of talking with his hands that English is a second language for the pilots. Well, so yes. that's, that's why he is so good at being a, being a piloty guy. <laughs> well, that's why he's, uh, he's one of the guys behind the curtain on the whole like play testing thing and all that. So it's all well-deserved. And uh, so I'm going to probably ask Chris and I will li- likely ask Doug a lot of the questions and get his tutelage, if you will, uh, maybe for your benefit if you're a listener. So uh, that's the whole purpose for this is to – I was telling Doug when we were chatting back and forth before the uh, before the recording that, you know, I don't know what I don't know. So I'm not sure what to even ask, to be honest with you. But I know there's some things that I've gotten slightly better at it. Maybe we can kind of go down that road for perhaps the new player. That there are certain things I think even I can recognize – are probably a better way to start off. Maybe some pitfalls to avoid, some things to, to, to do, to try to do, and then some things to continue doing if you're already doing them, like I mentioned before. So let's start out by talking about element spacing. Like at deployment, you got to put your airplanes on the table, but as soon as they start moving, they can do different things. I know when I first started playing, I had a tendency to keep them in pretty little finger four formations or something, or, you know, keep my planes wingtip to wingtip as I flew them across the table. Tell me, Doug, why that's probably not the best way to, uh, to start at least. Well, what I'll tell you is that you really have to base it off of what you think your airplane and your opponent's airplane are going to do. If, if your opponent is, I'll call him the Blood Red Skies 40K player, he's going to tee up all their planes and they're going to run them straight at you. They're going to attempt to fly behind you, uh, burn advantage, turn around and tail you. Then you'll fly a very different formation than if, let's say, you're playing me. And, and as Brett has seen, uh, I will break my formations up uh, into two ships fairly quickly at the beginning of the game. So so you're going to have to balance a little bit of that. And, and what I'll say is starting in a finger four kind of formation isn't bad. It's actually pretty good, even though you can't start with the spacing you need. So so what I'll tell you is the first thing that people need to understand is if if you take one formation and you fly that formation across the table, you really aren't optimizing your aircraft for the game. You you may make it look like how you would imagine a finger four formation or even maybe swarm formation or other things went went into combat and that's cool, um, but that's not how you win games. You win games by putting airplanes within the constraints of the rules into places and formations where they can support each other. Um, and the way I always remind everyone where to start that with is the wingman rule. And, and if there is nothing else that you use to anchor your formations, it is anchoring them in the ability to support each other through the wingman rule. And for those that have a hard time remembering that, it's very easy. 
make sure everybody has somebody, other than the poor tail and Charlie guy, that has them in their forward arc and is in, within one range ruler of it, so one shooting ruler within six inches. And that way, it will make it difficult for people to get into tailing solutions. Now, you can't always prohibit a tailing solution. I mean, even if you are directly behind your your flight lead there at five and three quarters inches, there's still all kinds of other directions and other places they can get. So you have to fly these formations a little bit fluidly and react to, to what your opponent is doing. Is that why you find breaking up into two ship elements works out so well? Because you could, you could have so different... So I'd, I'd do that for a couple reasons. Now, kind of like playing 40K, um, there's a lot of things that are reduced from the reality of ground combat into gamisms. The same thing is done... Uh, with with aircraft in blood red skies, and so what I've realized is I've, I've got the wingman rule to kind of simulate the, what we the concept we called mutual support. How everybody was keeping a lookout for everybody else and was able to tell them to break left. Hey, you're about to get shot. Whatever. Um, the the that's really only simulated by the wingman rule, and I can do that really effectively in a two ship. Um, I can also do it really effectively in a four ship. But what I can't do with a four ship is I can't make you make a decision. Uh, a lot of people will say they, especially in a lot of war games, they'll they'll lump various theories of war together and they'll say force concentration. I want to fly all four of my aircraft together, and that's true. If I was conducting a bombing mission, I would want all of my aircraft with the maximum effect in one target area. But aerial combat's a little bit different when it's air to air, and and there's an element of Force concentration is great, but making your opponent react to you, even better. You mentioned the finger four formation. Could you describe that for folks who don't maybe know what that looks like? Well, you look at your hand, and it's much like the fingertips on your hand. (laughs) So what it really is, is you have one fighter in the lead, and you have three other fighters supporting, and each of those are stepped back in an echelon formation. In other words, they're staggered back into the side of of their leader. So one one side has two, one side has a single fighter, uh, and... If you are flying it in the constraints of the game, I don't really care how far apart you fly this. Uh, we can argue uh, until we're blue in the face about how far you should fly it to be the perfect finger four uh, in game terms. Uh, but when you do that, you now have two airplanes supporting the lead, and one of your wingmen on, on one side has another aircraft supporting him. So that way you've now made, it, made the enemy have to work to get into a rear tailing solution on those fighters. So if you put all your planes on a table and you connected the dots, you would draw like a chevron that points in a direction of flight. You'd draw a weighted chevron, yes. It would be yeah. weighted with more aircraft on one side than the other, um, but it would be very much a, a V shape. That's cool. So that explains a little bit about you know starting off spacing and the tailing thing, which seems to me like that's the hardest thing I'm trying to figure out is uh, keeping that, maintaining that as the game progresses and things devolve I guess as we get going but there's some basic things that I think after several games I learned not to do too much things like head-on shots why would head-on shots maybe not be such a great choice for a new player so head-on shots are bad for two reasons one you're giving an opportunity for the enemy to rack up a boom chit on you it's simply in exchange for you getting a boom chit uh, unless he is already disadvantaged um, and it's an opportunity to turn that into a shoot down. So even if he still gets his shot, which he will, uh, even if you shoot him down and he gives you a boom chit, 
you might only make one extra boom chit out of this. So especially if it's a head-on shot against a neutral aircraft, in in my balancing of risk versus reward, I don't think it's worth it. If he's disadvantaged, maybe there's a case for that, but but be very careful because you might miss and he still gets to shoot back and now he's going to shoot at you, possibly give you a boom chit and possibly knock you down a level in your uh, in your advantage. So it, a lot of people use it as an early on maneuver and I think you're giving a lot of advantage to the enemy and giving him extra opportunities to wear you down by making that head-on shot against whoever happens to be uh, at a lower advantage state than you. Chris, this is probably a good chance to get you in here on this. When you've played, is there something that you recall being just confusing or frustrating that maybe Doug has some insight on? He's seen us do some foolish stuff on the table, I'm sure. Well, the the biggest thing that Doug always, it was the wingman rule, and, and he already covered it. But I was doing a really poor job when I was coming across of thinking of everything as somebody's always got to be defending something, somebody else's six. Doug, when I played him the second time, I noticed that when he would bring elements across the board, he wasn't just focusing on how he was going to get advantage on my aircraft. He was focusing on where he could move to this turn to be covering his own guys and also be in a position to jump on something the next turn. And that was something I slowly started picking up as we were playing when we were down at your house last time. Yeah, and that's that's one of those difficult concepts to think about is because we we tend to, when we play Blood Red Skies, and I've been victim of it too, uh, that we, we get out there and we get a single aircraft into a position where they can burn advantage and either immediately be tailing or at least have a shot. And by golly, I want to take it. And as we would say in aviation, that's all balls, dick, and no forehead. In other words, you are just charging out there and you're not thinking at all. Uh, you cannot do that in Blood Red Skies. Well, you can. Uh, and you will get shot down because you will fly and you will take a shot opportunity, even tailing, and you'll miss. Brett probably saw a number of guys during our demo games at Coastal Con get frustrated when the dice would just turn against them during situations like that. They're like, I've got you, I've tailed you, and I missed. Um, what are you talking and- about? I bought new dice because I yeah. couldn't roll a six. <laughs> exactly. I started, just so everyone knows, I started feeling so bad for the players that I would take the the uh, starter set dice away from them and give them my dice. I'm like, here, please take some RAF dice. I realize you're playing the Luftwaffe. <laughs> or take some American dice. I realize you're playing the Japanese. Uh, but... Uh, you know, it's you, you have to understand that you should really only take that opportunity to shoot when you can continue the follow-on fight. So there's, there's two lines of thinking uh, in modern basic fighter maneuvers. Um, I will, rather than giving everyone the, the vast painful lecture, I will condense it down to, to two things that, that people always have to remember. Is you always fight a sustainable fight. So, so you're fighting not to necessarily immediately take a shot. You're fighting for multiple shot opportunities. So I'm going to position my aircraft to where not only can I tell you this turn, but I'm going to tell you this turn, even if you move your minimum and I now move my minimum, I can start off and shoot you again next turn, and only then will I move and, and be outside uh, of a shooting solution. So you, you really want to set up multiple shot opportunities for each burning of advantage or each time you give up some, some opportunity. But then I'll also say there's a, a saying you you in the modern parlance of making what we would call energy excursions, kind of like burning advantage in the game, 
you do that for one of two reasons, to make an attempt at a shot or to deny an attempt at a shot. And a lot of times people forget that. They, f- they forget, they just kind of want to turn out of the enemy's arc. Uh, and the fact is, if he didn't tail you and if he didn't put you immediately down to disadvantage where you can't burn advantage, it might be worth burning advantage and running 180 degrees the other direction simply because you better have a wingman there that is going to cause that opposing fighter, that bandit, to not want to burn advantage and follow you. If you don't, he'll burn advantage and he'll follow you and you'll die. Um, but uh, it's it's one of those, those thought processes that um, you may want to get used to burning advantage to dive towards another wingman. And I know I did this to you, Brett, and I know it frustrated the hell out of you because I saw it happen a couple times where I would, especially with uh, with F-86s and MiGs with faster aircraft, I would burn advantage and turn and run back to be right within the wingman arc of another fighter. And you people look at that and they go, ah, what am I going to do? I, I can't get a, to a tailing solution on that guy. There were a few instances where I thought I was doing such a great job. Like everything I'd laid out was like, oh, it's coming together perfectly. And then I realized what I was tailing was my own aircraft. Or yeah, well, there like is that. that. <laughs> I've even been guilty of doing that. I'm like, yes, I got the perfect maneuver. And wait, that's a silver MiG, not a silver Sabre. Shit. I know I'll be going back and listen to this part of our recording uh, because I, I see kind of light coming through a distant keyhole when it comes to this concept, but I'm not there yet. So, uh, but I know that there's hope that I'll get it eventually. I just need to get you know several more games in. And guess what? I'm guessing playing is a way to get better, right? Get lots of reps yeah, in, right? And, and, you know, guys, that's the, the thing I have to remind everyone is that if everybody goes out there and, and even if you don't have an opportunity to play across the table. So, so one of the reasons why, in my estimation, I think I do better playing MIG Alley against you, Brett, who actually played MIGs more often against me than I had until we went to Coastal Con, was I spent a lot of time just pushing Sabres and MIGs around the table by myself just to see how they maneuvered. And to see, really, what's the effect of rough ride? How, how many shots am I going to miss on any given engagement if I have four MiGs and four Sabres? Just because of that stupid rough ride rule where I have to make a pilot skill check now just to take a, a pilot action um, after I've burned advantage. So so there to me, there's something to be said for going out and and learning how the models and the aircraft cards and everything behave in, in the physics of the table because then you'll see shot opportunities. When... When I explain to people how we train in modern basic fighter maneuvers, the goal is to imprint in that pilot or Wizzo's uh, brain snapshots, things they have seen, and not snapshots as in fleeing gun opportunities, but snapshots of things they've seen. Okay, I've seen a high-performance fighter pull a 6G brake turn in front of me. I know what to do, how to, how to not let him cause me to flush out and overshoot. Or, okay, I have seen a high-performance fighter go nose low, put afterburner in, max performance, kind of max G turn into me. How do I still follow him down and still gun him? So we we concentrate on those things, and you can actually learn a lot of that just moving the models around yourself and not even really playing a game, just playing the rules is what I'll call it, and say, oh, what would I have done here? Well, okay, now I'm the bad guy. What, what I've done is the MiGs, and okay, now I'm the F-86s. What would I do? And And kind of learning how the aircraft relate to each other. Well, that's a good point. We did a lot of that when we first cracked the book for Airstrike. We just sort of exercised some of the new we conditions did. of the rules. Absolutely. It's the same. Absolutely. Yeah, same concept. That's awesome. Well, let me ask you. So I think sometimes we're we're playing and folks are in a de- you know, they have to make a decision. Do I outmaneuver or do I you know, 
climb for advantage or do something like that. Um, I was noticing on that decision matrix you made for solo play that outmaneuver comes before climbing for advantage when you're faced with the choice. It, it does. And I take no credit other than putting the words and symbols and horrible things together. Uh, that is Andy Chambers's words. And that, you know, I, I, I laugh because I may make fun of him Never to his face because I want him to keep sending me stuff. But no, I may make fun of him for being a simulator pilot um, and not having flown in the real world. But he has an understanding, and you see it in that that flow chart of, that he gave us the the words to, that you understand what your priorities are. And your your priorities are not necessarily to being in the most advantageous position. Your priorities are putting your putting the bandit into the least advantageous position. So let me let me read from the good book for you all. And uh, no, I'm not reading the Bible. I didn't suddenly get religion here. Um, this is from Fighter Combat, Tactics, and Maneuvering. And I'm going to read two separate sections here. Uh, just to put this in perspective, that very question you asked me. So there's a quote from uh, Randy Duke Cunningham uh, in here that says, Why let rank lead when ability can do it better? So... Let's think about that for a second in the formations we fly. In other words, put your aces or your experienced pilots where they need to be, which may not always be in the front. Um, and then as they talk about a Navy tactic called the loose deuce, and that really came up in Vietnam, and it was a evolution of the thatch weave. And if people don't know what the thatch weave is, we can go back and talk about that another day. Um, but the point is when using two fighters out there, the fighter tactics books, when discussing, you know, two versus one maneuvering, uh, two two friendly fighters, one bandit, uh, it talks about the fact that the engaged fighter, which is the poor guy who ends up turning with that bandit, that guy sets up the kill by forcing or inducing the bogey to maneuver predictably, thereby making it easier for the free fighter, his buddy who's just hanging out waiting to shoot, to position for a shot. This is exactly the role of the engaged fighter in defensive situations. Uh, as discussed, blah, blah, blah. And it carries a f this philosophy into the offensive also. So the point is, you should always have an opportunity to outmaneuver, and you should use that as you're going in gambit. And where, Brett, you probably saw me use it against you, is there were times that the first aircraft flying past you might not have been the ace, but he was of a higher skill than one of the other guys close to him. So you might have had a pilot skill two and a pilot skill three, I made sure I brought that pilot skill three closest to the pilot skill two so I could outmaneuver him. And did it mean that I didn't you know, climb for advantage or didn't get a shot? Absolutely. But it meant somebody else could now shoot that pilot skill two because he wasn't advantaged. He was neutral or disadvantaged because I'd outmaneuvered him. Yeah, one of the things I fail to remember often is that once you change that advantage state, they're going to go later. So then that sets, that's how you set the next. Oh yeah. And, and that happens to me at all the worst times, right? When I'll sit there and I will be, you know, getting ready, putting my dice together, blowing on them, making them feel lucky. And somebody will simply outmaneuver the guy that was supposed to go next that I was all excited to use. And now he is a disadvantaged three instead of a neutral three. And I'm like, well, I guess he's just going to flow out of the fight. Well, here's something I've seen you do. I've seen you purposefully fly your aircraft off the table uh, when the um, scenario lets so fucking lootly. Yeah, tell me why that's a good tactic sometimes. So let me start this and not answer your question. I'm going to be a politician here. Uh, so I'm going to answer your question with a question. What scenario do you usually play, Brett? 
mm, fighter sweep maybe. <laughs> so so I think that's one of the big differences is some people play dogfight. Uh, some fewer number of people play fighter sweep. Probably an even fewer number of people play bounced. Uh, what I will tell you is if you want to get good at this game and all you play is dogfight, you will never get good at this game. You have to play each one of the other scenarios. First of all, because if you play bounced, you have to learn how to come back from a really crappy position. <laughs> or else, like I will, you'll lose the game quickly and you'll just say, hey, Brett, let's play that again. <laughs> because I just lost. So uh, you'll learn how to, how to come back from a crappy situation. And you'll also play with different board edge rules. So the rules between dogfight and the rules between fighter sweep and bounced are all very different for leaving the board. And in some cases, it's kind of advantageous to take the risk, especially if you're a disadvantaged fighter and you say, okay, worst case, I'm going home in, in fighter sweep. Worst case, I'm going home and not accumulating any more boom chits to the squadron. Best case, I'm coming back in high cover. So I'm just out of the fight for a turn, and then I come back with advantage. Um, so there, there's a lot of things to understand about that. Get you kind of a do-over. You're not getting shot at when you're not on the table, right? Exactly, exactly. So you'll also notice that to lead up to that, I tend to bracket. Um, and so now I'm going to lose every game I play at a you know Adepticon 2021 or, or uh, the next Coastal Con because everybody's going to know my tactic. But I, I always drive to the board edges, regardless of the scenario. The scenario may say that you die instantaneously when you, when you leave the board edge. I'm still going to drive to the board edge. And why is that? Because if I'm in a scenario where I can leave the board, it gives me options. And more importantly, it puts all of you people I'm trying to kill in one part of the map. I don't have to decide, well, am I turning left or am I turning right? I'm not going in between a bunch of enemy fighters. All the enemy fighters are one way, so there's only one way I need to turn. And that's a principle of multi-aircraft engaged maneuvering that is written in blood. That's something that I'm starting to pick up on. I, I find myself when I'm in two scenarios where I'm flying the board edge a lot more. One's when I'm flying my 110s, which are sort of vulnerable anyway. And the other one is MIG Alley, which I think we'll get to in a little bit. But before we talk about multi-engine and maybe other versions of the game, let me ask you a couple more things about the basic box. Clouds, any relevance for tactics when you have clouds yeah always know where your clouds are and never touch a cloud unless you intended to uh it is the great equalizer literally because it makes everybody neutral but um what i will say is you, you really need to use those clouds to your advantage and thankfully the errata and the faq have made it now so you can't just hang out in the clouds i know early on we used to do that and that gets extremely frustrating uh it doesn't really simulate uh, air combat very well it's it's a little bit of gamesmanship but the fact is be intentional when you use the clouds know why you're using them and and understand that it's really only a, a temporary fix it's it's getting you back to a neutral state as you leave that cloud so you can do something with the with the advantage you've just gained um, because if you're flying into a cloud getting back to neutral and then think you're going to extend and get out of the fight somebody else is going to pop out of a cloud and be in a tailing position on you pretty quick. How about cards? Have you? I mean, I know there's some aircraft trait cards that really help boost uh, or negate things like outmaneuver or make your dives better and all that. Are, are there mistakes you've seen new players do with the cards besides just forget to use them? Well, I was going to say that it's the mistake that I always make is forget to use them. And I think open play deck helps that a lot. Um, I think it also helps you from 
not being a card hoarder like I've been and, and I have failed miserably trying to hold on to an ace card that I didn't use. Uh, maybe some people will say, hey, that's that's part of the game. Uh, you should play it that way. I'm really a fan of the open deck just because it allows me to think, what what do I want to apply immediately to this situation and, and not have a gamesmanship of which cards do I need to get rid of, which cards do I need to keep. If I wanted that, I, you know, I'd go up to Michigan and, uh, and join Chris playing Magic the Gathering, and, and that's really not what I want to do. Man, you're... You're killing me. <laughs> I couldn't. Was I supposed to pass that up? Come on, that was too easy. I mean, I mean, Brett just teed that one up. Like, Deek, let me just let me tee it right up to you. Oh God, Chris, I think you'll like open play because I know sometimes you were complaining you would forget to use your. You had a great card, you'd forget to use it. The open yep. play deck not only helps remind you what you have because there's this pile of cards sitting there, but I, I just really like it because, like Doug was saying, you know, you're not passing up cards so you can. I don't know, just. I just like it a lot better, and uh, maybe that's because I'm still new at the game, but I really I, found I think it, it allows you to optimize the traits for the, the mission at hand. So if you are an aircraft with two traits, you still only have half as many as the total aircraft on the board. So if you have six ME-109s, you've got three of each trait there. But if you're a, a single uh, trait aircraft like the, uh, like the Spitfire, I've got six tight turn cards, so I know I'm using that every time, and if that's what I need to do, I'm playing tight turn, not thinking, oh, do I ditch this theater card or this doctrine card to, to make sure I have enough tight turns. You know, I'm really beginning to have an even greater appreciation for the card mechanic because, you know, when we first started playing, I think we might have played even without cards just to get the you know, mechanics down. Absolutely. Which is, it's a great way to start, right? But as you get a little more comfortable with the game, man, the, the card mechanic is awesome because you might have a trait that allows you to completely upset somebody's fantastic plan they have because now it, all of a sudden it does. And, and, and there are some of those Blue Falcon cards out there. Uh, and if you don't know why I call them a Blue Falcon, then you just need to go look that up. Uh, but but there Buddy's some... only half a word. <laughs> exactly. Buddy's just half the word. Um there are some true Blue Falcon cards out there between the Tactics and, and uh, sorry, between the Theater and the Doctrine cards. And uh, I'll be honest, part of the fun is playing that card that may be sitting right there in front where everybody sees it, but you're like, oh, no, you didn't. And you play that card, and the guy takes a pilot check, takes a maneuver check, fails it miserably, and looks at you like, I'm going to take your little planes and turn them into little resin dust. Um, but, it, but that, to me, is, is part of the game, making the uncertainty happen. I don't know if it makes me a bad person, but I find those to be about the most satisfying cards to play. It's, when they, the, they... <laughs> it's the diplomacy theory. I, I tell people that for a game with zero production values, basically a map of Europe and wooden blocks, diplomacy is the most fun game I have ever played. And why is it? Because you can absolutely fuck your buddy over and you get rewarded for it. And I always tell the story of my happiest moment playing diplomacy was watching one of my friends... His girlfriend was also playing a different country. I think she backstabbed three different players in one turn, including her boyfriend, and just the sheer look of, you can't do that, honey, on his face. And yes, yes, she did. She, she invaded. So it was yeah, that I, I tend to like a little bit of that uncertainty in games myself. I think that's why I hate Rough Ride because it's sort yeah. of like that, but I do it to <laughs> it's myself. Self-induced. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's self-induced stupidity. <laughs> well, so far, everything we've been talking about has been, you know, right from the basic box setters or anything, since we're talking about Rough Ride, anything that tactics-wise is unique for MIG Alley when you consider the the speed of the aircraft and that kind of stuff? Well, well, speed is one thing, and I won't really address that because I don't think that is as much of a a 
player uh, in in what you need to think about doing as I call it the glass ceiling, the 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 hold down, whatever you want to refer to it. It's the bubble that flies around with a jet that other people can't climb for advantage with. And that is a key concept to think about and to to use every time you decide, am I going to extend out of this fight? Am I going to stick around? Am I going to stick around and try to shoot the other aircraft? Because sometimes you just want to stick around within nine inches to make sure they don't climb for advantage. And you don't necessarily need to be in a position to shoot them because my point is I'm not shooting you this turn. I am holding you down and keeping you from climbing up so that my other aircraft, who is advantaged or more advantaged than you, can come in and shoot you. That effect works against other Jet 1 aircraft as well, right? A- absolutely. So it always it works against, you have to be of a higher jet generation to climb for advantage uh, as a pilot action against, uh, against one of those jets. So if you're a poor prop plane, everybody is dog humping you at that point. If you're a Jet 1, the Jet 2 people, the jet, other Jet 1s and Jet 2s are holding you down. And if you're a Jet 2, your fellow Jet 2s are holding you down. I really like MIG Alley, and um, I find it a lot of fun. I know we've played uh, several games of it. The only thing that uh, would make it more fun is if you'd actually play some some F-84s. <laughs> I, no, no, I, I don't need to take a bicycle to a motorcycle race. No, Maybe, I, I really don't. They should Target, least, targets everywhere. Yeah, yeah they should exactly. Be the targets up. <laughs> well, the F-84 should come out when we have B-29s at least. Well, and so maybe I, I say this, not trying to be Mr. Pie in the Sky, believe that that it's gonna it's gonna work out, but maybe that will work. And and I think that the next time we all get together, we're not quarantined, we might ought to proxy in some of these Korea era Jet Ones aircraft to see if they can be that final line of defense, as they kind of were. They were that that jet that was just going to go ahead and throw itself at the MiGs, and in most cases was really ineffective because it just couldn't turn, climb, maneuver, do anything with the MiG. Uh, but maybe it'll be a speed bump on the way to the B-29s. Yeah, that sounds good. Because you know those, those 86s will be in high cover anyway. They they pretty much took my lunch money. Well, so yeah. I, th- I think if we simulate that, we're going to have to change how we, we do the initial deployment. I think a lot of your 86s are going to, your F-86s are going to have to be up in in high cover, and it's there's going to have to be a little um, narrative flair to this that it's not just a, everybody teeing up, running at each other, but the MiGs are going to have to be in everybody's chili before you put the F-86s in, or otherwise it's going to be no fun. We were talking about the board edge. Do you find the board edge is especially relevant in MiG alley games? I feel like we get in a big circle flying the board edge with those longer distances. So I think it it is, it's still extremely applicable, and I will even extrapolate it to the Vietnam era when you and I were playtesting. You saw that my poor MiG-21s made a run for the board edge, trying to put myself in that same decision matrix of, if if he pins me over here, I'm just jumping off the board and coming back in high cover, or taking that risk that I won't, which is kind of a MiG-21 tactic anyway. But the point was I needed to really end around your F-4s uh, to get in a position to to employ my weapons. So I, I think as the aircraft speeds get larger as you go to MiG Alley and then moving on to other conflicts, the uh, the board edge is still extremely viable. It's easier to get there. It's also easier to paint yourself in a corner where you have no option other than flying off the board edge. And when does that come up? Well, when you're like me and you're a neutral guy and you're trying to, trying to turn around the corner and some dude goes over and outmaneuvers you. And all of a sudden you are disadvantaged pointing right at the board edge with like four inches to go and you're hosed because you're going to fly off the board edge. There is absolutely nothing 
short of low altitude tactics that can get you out of that. So it can kind of come back to bite you. Yeah, and, and there's been a couple times that I've just painted myself in a corner like that. So you have to be cognizant of the board edges. Well, how about airstrike? Let's talk about that that uh, game set. Anything tactics wise that uh, is relevant for airstrike? I'm thinking, you know, flying under barrages with your with your uh, fighters and stuff well, like that. There's a there's a couple t- couple tactics. I say it really falls into kind of three big concepts. Um, realize barrage flak is not going to kill you. The odds of it shooting you down are pretty low, assuming it doesn't end up right on top of you. Uh, If you have an opportunity to fly through it, change your heading, or even if it bumps you as you fly through and it changes your heading, not a huge deal. You can do, as I call, the porpoise. You can sit there and you can purposely drop and and try to fly underneath it and come back up. That sometimes can be fraught with peril based on how close to the target the, the flak is, uh, some other things. Um, but it, it, it's not impossible to do. Uh, what I will say is generally just, just take the flak, fly through it. Uh, you'll be able to deviate enough to, to skirt between the barrages. And even if you just clip one and take, take the worst case uh, heading change that it induces, uh, normally you can turn back in. Because the fact is, even even as we played it, you really can't do a rolling barrage unless you have two targets. Because it doesn't matter how many barrages you get, they all have to be placed and removed and go away for a turn and come back, you know, after being gone from a turn, they have to be a, at least, I believe, six inches from a enemy aircraft. So there's, there's, you can't really just drop them on people. It isn't like an apocalyptic blast marker in 40k <laughs> you can't do that in this game there's very specific airstrike rules about how far apart they have to be so it really is a nuisance uh more than more than a a wall of lead that you're flying through it's the light flak that'll really eat your lunch when you get low enough that's yeah that's the one that to me is a weird odds game so if there's only like two points of light flak okay whatever i don't care i'll take it Pfft, big deal uh, you get up to four points of light flak, or sometimes when you put the additive cards on there, you might get more than four points. You might get six points. Uh, yeah, that that's pretty good odds they're going to hurt you. And oh, by the way, if you're already disadvantaged uh, down there doing a strafing run or something, uh, you're pretty much done. And then if you're neutral and it hits you and it knocks you down to disadvantage, then guess what? Now you're meat for whatever fighters are out there. Well, you mentioned multiple targets. I remember the f- few games we played where there were multiple targets. You really have to decide with your bomber stream. You're, you're not going to do a whole lot of damage to more than one target. It's not likely in a single game as, that you're going to even destroy a target. So if your victory conditions require you to get a certain amount of damage on that target, it seemed like we found you had to pick your one place and just go there with and, those and bombers. And that's, that's where I'll draw the line. That Yes, see, there's an example of force concentration is extremely important in, in that point. Pick a target make it successful and and there's a little bit of math hammer that has to go in there and you have to kind of look at it and say all right i've got three aircraft and they're all you know three engines making whatever that is four dice per attack three dice per attack um here's what i think my odds are and here's how many hits i need to get to destroy the target or or here's how many vp i'll get if i just do area hits to it and, and then really decide, do I have a reserve? And I'll be honest, most of the scenarios, if you fly right out of airstrike, you don't have a reserve. You have maybe, you know, three three-engine bombers. You might have three two-engine bombers. You might have six single engines. 
you just don't have the ability to do multiple waves or or to split your forces. So if you have multiple targets for whatever scenario, hopefully you also have multiple waves to attack it or or an ability to uh, to to really bring a significant amount of firepower to bear against it. Yeah, in some kind of homegrown campaign setting where you're going to play that over multiple games where that well, and that's something that we talked about trying to do with Malta is a is a a campaign, but it's a a campaign at one sitting. So it's kind of the multiple waves. So you go in there, you defend it with your Spitfires and your Hurricanes. You've got SM79s. You've got you know C202s going in with them, and that wave goes through. Okay, hey, that game is done. Everybody else resets except for the targets. So the targets are still damaged. Maybe you bring up different fighters. Maybe you change out your pilot skill. Maybe there's some mechanic you've built there to simulate these guys going back and either switching pilots, rearming the aircraft, getting them back out. And now you've got JU-88s and 109s that are going in to, to strike the target. So you you have an ability to bring multiple waves in there. And I think that's a, a real fun, uh, I'll call it a mini campaign setting, where you you know what your enemy is going to bring, you know how you're going to change your defensive force allocation, and you just play until he wears the targets down. And it's kind of a thing of congratulations, you did it in two waves, or hey, you suck, it took you six waves to do this. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. We've been getting after this for about an hour, so I think it's about time to start to wrap up our main topic segment. I know that I've got some questions about things like you mentioned the loose goose and the thatch weave. There's ways that we can maybe incorporate that in a way that makes sense on the table, but maybe we'll save that for another episode. Uh, Absolutely. I want to say, though, uh, I printed out that decision matrix you made based on uh, Andy's you know, uh, comments. And I've printed out, I'm going to have it on the table with me as I play as a cheat sheet, a reference to help me get better. Chris, I suggested you do the same thing. Our listeners, I am, I am doing it. <laughs> yeah, do it. And, and listeners, get a hold of it. Uh, Doug, how can folks find that and print that out for themselves for their games at home? So unfortunately, right now it's buried in a comment thread. But what I'll do is I'll go back and I'll post that in the ready room in the file section. And I'll just call it solo play decision matrix. Uh, but I will also go ahead and put that up on the uh, on the Lead Pursuit Facebook page. So in case anyone wants to see it, it'll be up there. We'll put it on the website as well underneath all of our file sections, probably under the scenario section. Uh, so it'll be in there. And you can download it and use it. And once again, it's the intent is just kind of a guide so that if you are playing by yourself, here's how you can kind of have the aircraft, your, your enemy, go via a flowchart and what he should do. Uh, and then it also kind of gives you an ability to, to think through it as yourself. Hey, am I doing these things? Am I prioritizing either diving to get in close contact with the enemy or am I prioritizing out maneuvering or climbing for advantage or what am I doing? Awesome. Let's get on to our final segment, which is our debrief. Anybody uh, know of some listener questions out there? I've got one. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Uh, I saw maybe today, actually, on uh, Ready Room, I believe, somebody was asking questions again about what scale would be appropriate for ship targets. And uh, I think somebody was asking if 1 to 200 would be a good scale. And I think, guys, that is way, way too big. Way too big. Yeah, way, way too big. I mean, although I will say John Russell's 1 200 scale carrier model is going to be beautiful, uh, but it's going it's to be huge to take up the whole table. Yeah, for for practical frequent games, I think one to seven hundred might be about the biggest you'd want to go. It's, is that about the scale of the um, the ship game? The uh, I'm sorry, not the not the big ship game, but the um, the skirmish game. Forgive me, Cruel Seas. Gosh, I was struggling to remember it. That's one so to seven hundred. Cruel isn't it? Seas 
I don't remember what is it one to three hundred or one to seven hundred. I forget. I probably should play the game. I'm a terrible warlord supporter if I haven't played the game. But yeah, I you know I think for small ships you could do something in the one to seven hundred, one to nine hundredth level. Um, and Brett, you know the the scale that we've we've kind of chosen for a lot of our stuff. Yeah, I posted that in the comments. Uh, somebody suggested one to seven hundred might be good. I think that's probably good. And and I think you can find at least for some of the bigger, more notable warships, uh, waterline models that you can. That you can build. I'm not sure Absolutely. what the new game that's out now that we talked in our, about on our last episode. I don't recall what that's. Victory that skip. at Sea, I believe, is one eighteen hundredth. Yeah, I see, so that's it's a, slightly larger than some of the ones we have, and about the same size as some others. Yeah, that's a good scale. We have one to twenty four hundred. I think it's really good. I mean, I'll, I'll be the stickler for for accuracy and say, sure, I need something really tiny out there. But but like everything else, it's a compromise between. You know, I need a, a reasonably sized airplane and a reasonably sized ship so that I can enjoy the game and I'm not moving a little head of a pin to go bomb the bottom of a pin somewhere. Um, you know, so I think I think those are good scales. Yeah, and 1 to 2400 means an aircraft carrier from World War II is going to be about five inches long. And if you think of the airstrike target cards that come in the, um, come in the PDF or the book you get are probably about three by five size cards. I, I don't have it right in front of me, so I'm just kind of going off memory. But it's something that takes approximately the same amount of space on the table if you're looking for a three-dimensional target that uh, doesn't hog up the whole board and you know you can still do measurements from without it being kind of... I think we talked about this. You don't want the potential for it to be overly gamey, you know what I mean? Where somebody could exploit the target and that kind of thing. Yeah, we, we've we've had that discussion where if you have a, a carrier that takes up the entire board edge, then there's really not much challenge to the torpedo bombers other than they just have to get there. It's a exercise in blowing through all the fighters, surviving the flak, and getting within six inches of the board edge so they can shoot their torpedoes. Um, and and that may be enough of a of a balance for you. You say, okay, then I'll I'll play with a big carrier, and that's fine. I enjoy the fact that you use a smaller carrier, and now I have that ability to fly kind of an offset pattern. I'm going to offset away from the fighters, see how how long I can keep them away from the bombers, and then let the torpedo bombers roll in and, and make the torpedo runs. Well, we'll get plenty of chances when we get together again to play on with some of those carriers in uh, 1 to 2400. I have a couple painted up for, um, I have the Midway carriers, I have a carrier from Malta, so that'll be fun. We'll get the Put our money where our mouth is, but I think we'll be in good shape because, like I said, I think they're about the size of the cards that are printed to, that are designed from the book that fill that role, if you will. We just kind of opted for something that looks cooler on right. the table than a right. card. So, yeah, that's that's my answer to that. I would say 1 to 200. Certainly way too big now that we talk about it. Maybe 1 to 700 is a little crazy large, too. But um, any other questions use, you guys have seen? Use what's, to me, I, I always tell people, use what looks cool on the table. Uh, and and what fits what you want to do. I mean, guys have said, can I use one two eighty fifth scale armor? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's it's certainly going to be really big on the table, but I also can look down and go, hey, that's Panzer four down there instead of hey, that's you know three little small lead blocks <laughs> on a piece of acrylic. You know, I now actually know what kinds of vehicles I'm bombing. That's cool, I, man. You know, the whole airstrike thing. Even though we've just played a few rudimentary games with it, I cannot wait to play more and more of that because it just adds all the more. It just adds so much more dimension to it. So anyway, my two cents. But uh, you start getting into the targets and all that stuff. It's gonna be awesome. All right, brother. Well, it was good talking with you. Thanks for uh, sharing some of your uh, expertise. I feel like uh, I'm just a little bit better just from the conversation we had. And man, I 
you know, I really need to make the time to just play, like you said, move some of the models around on my own, do a little solo play to uh, nug some of that stuff out and just get a little better. And then, of course, soon we'll get the chance to play real. Absolutely. Look forward to whipping your ass again across the table. <laughs> All right. It'll be good. 